Just a warning, this episode may contain language or topics that may not be suitable for all audiences. Listener discretion is advised. Hey everybody, I'm Zoe. And I'm Chandi. And this is Bound by the Cloak. We've discussed false confessions and wrongful convictions before, and today we're revisiting that conversation, this time with Jeff Deskovic. In 1990, at the age of 17, he was wrongfully convicted of a crime he did not commit, the rape and murder of his classmate. We sat down with Jeff to hear his story of resilience, advocacy, and the pursuit of justice. After 16 years behind bars, Jeff was exonerated in 2006. He's now transformed his harrowing experience into a driving force for change. Jeff is a tireless advocate for criminal justice reform. Through the Deskovic Foundation, he has dedicated his life to preventing wrongful convictions, supporting the wrongfully convicted, and working towards a more just legal system. Let's talk to Jeff about his remarkable journey from the darkest moments of his incarceration to his unwavering commitment to justice reform. Hi, Jeff. Good morning, Jeff. Good morning. How are you doing? I'm great. Thank you. How are you? I'm good. I'm good. Thank you so much for being on the podcast today. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. You know, like most people, when they're 16, they're thinking about the prom or thinking about going to college or joining the military or I don't know, whatever kids do these days. But you had something else going on when you were 16. Can you tell us about that? Sure. The year was uh, 1989 slash 90. Yeah. And, and uh, I was, we're in Peekskill, which is a suburb, so a, a, a city in suburban uh, New York in Westchester County specifically. I was a sophomore in high school and a girl, uh, Angela Correa, who was a classmate in two of my classes as a freshman, one as a sophomore. She she went she was a, she was in a photography class and the photography class um, teacher assigned the, all the students, including her, to take pictures of certain foliage. And he had implemented a buddy system in which uh, male students were matched with female uh, students. And Angel Correa, who was a 15 year old immigrant from Colombia, she'd been in the country for about a year and a half, leading a pretty sheltered life, as um, I later learned, where she never went anywhere unless she was accompanied by her older sister or her uh, or her parents. She um, walked home after her uh, with, with her with her older sister. And older sister went to the restroom, and when she came back. Uh, Angela had left. She went, decided to go to the park to do this uh, photography class assignment uh, on her own. The uh, male student who was assigned to her played hooky on the assignment and she started to take pictures. And the, there's like a wooded area that connects these condominiums in Hillcrest Park with uh, Hillcrest, uh, the school. It's a very thick wooded area, but it does have like a macadam path, like a like a swatch kind of cut out in the middle of the two. And so she went there to take some photos and she unfortunately encountered a 29-year-old drug addict who was high, who attacked, uh, murdered and raped her. Uh, her body was missing for three days and when it was recovered, uh, when, it was, when she was found, you know, she had been found uh, naked from the waist down. And there, just like that, you know, Peekskill was set into 
like a, like an uproar. There was an atmosphere of fear, rumor, paranoia. I mean, parents were driving their kids directly to school, picking them up after school, bringing them straight home. There were town hall meetings held at times, uh, going over um, different updates on investigations, safety protocols, that type of thing. So in the course of the police investigation, the police interviewed a lot of students from the high school, and some of them told the police that they might want to speak with me. Uh, I was kind of quiet until myself. I was on the edges of the peripheral of the society in the high school. I mean, I kind of lived a double life. I didn't really think of it that way at the time. But looking back, that's kind of what it's clear that that's what it was. There was my life after school. Uh, growing up in uh, the Crossroads Apartments in Peekskill was a big complex of a lot of buildings. There were a lot of kids that lived there. There were kids that lived in the nearby areas. And I was one of the main two kids when we would get together. And pretty much whatever I would suggest would usually be what we would do. If we're going to play basketball, play Monopoly, go to movies, ride bikes, um, you know, we used to play tackle football with no equipment and other things that kids do. Um, but that was my, you know, that was my life after school, though. That was, you know, the kids in the school, that was a different set of kids that were a different group than I was. And, you know, I really wasn't familiar with them. And so I was kind of like tight and withdrawn into myself, you know. So I guess in the course, when the, when the police were interviewing some of the students, I think the thought that ran through some of their mind was, well, kids that are quiet and to themselves commit heinous crimes. I think that was their thought process. And so that had the impact of putting me on the police radar, you know, so that's how the police became aware of me. But in addition to that, uh, I was I was a sensitive teenager. This was my first real brush with death. And, you know, this had a had an impact uh, on me. And, you know, so I was uh, emotional and the police thought that given my non-relationship with the victim, as I've already um as, as I mentioned, you know, I mean, we weren't, I knew her name, she was on mine, we weren't even really on a high buy basis. So the police thought, well, you're emotional about the death of someone you barely knew. This seems like suspicious. Maybe this is some sort of outward sign that you're sorry for what you did. So uh, that was the second factor. Uh, additionally, the police got a psychological profile from the NYPD, which purported to have the psychological characteristics of the actual perpetrator. And I had the misfortune of matching that those characteristics. Well, it's someone, you know, it's uh, somebody that uh, is, is, is a loner, probably knew the victim already, likely somebody from the high school. Boy, does that narrow it down quite a bit, right? Uh, but nonetheless, it had the impact of uh, reinforcing uh, things for them. So for the next uh, six weeks, the police played this cat and mouse game with me in which half the time they would speak to me like I was a suspect and the other half the time they would pretend like they needed my help to solve the crime. And they would say things like, the kids won't talk freely around us, but they will around you. Let us know if you hear anything. Stop in from time to time. You know, they would ask me opinion questions and congratulate me like my opinion was correct. They made me feel important. I came from a single parent household. My father was never involved in my life in any aspect. And that intersected with the good cop, bad cop routine in which one officer is aggressive and the other one pretends to be a friend. So in time, I began to think of him like as a, as a father figure. And then um, beyond that, I mean, uh, before I was a teenager, the career that I thought about having when I grew up was to be a cop. And I think somehow or another, they managed to learn that and hence developing this Jeff as a junior detective helper theme. So eventually they got me to agree to take a lie detector test. They said, look, we got some new information in the file. We want to share that with you. It's going to enable you to be even more helpful to us. 
first though, you have to take and pass the polygraph. So the next day, rather than going to the high school, I went to the police station for the test. It was a school day. So my mother and grandmother thought I was in school. They had no idea that anything was wrong. But instead of giving me the lie detector at the Peekskill Police Headquarters, as I had heard through the rumor mill that uh, other, a few other people had been polygraphed there, they instead drove me from Peekskill, which is in Westchester County, they drove me across county lines to the town of Brewster, which is in Putnam County. So it was 40 minutes away by car, which meant I wasn't able to leave anymore on my own. I was totally dependent upon the police. There were two, there were uh, three officers who came with me from Peekskill. The bad cop and the lieutenant were in one car. They put me in the car by myself with the good cop. And um, when we got to uh, Brewster, uh, there, there was a fourth officer, uh, Investigator Daniel Stevens, but, uh, the polygraphist, but he was dressed like a civilian. He never identified himself as law enforcement. He never, he never read me my rights. He gave me a four-page brochure on how the polygraph worked, but it had a lot of big words in it that I didn't understand. But I figured, well, I'm there to help the police. So what does it matter? Let's just get on with it. You know, I had no attorney present. They didn't give me anything to eat the entire time I was there. After finishing with the brochure, they put me in a small, uh, small area, small room. He gave me countless cups of coffee. I wasn't really a coffee drinker at the age of 16. I think the purpose of the coffee was to get me nervous. Um, so after giving me many, many cups of coffee, I mean, no sooner had it when I finished one cup, and he had the thing in his hands and was pouring out, you you want another one? Gave me many cups, uh, somewhere between six and eight, which wired me up. And then he literally wired me up to the machine. And uh, from there, he launched into his third degree tactics. So he raised his voice at me. He invaded my personal space. Uh, he kept asking me the same questions over and over again. And he kept that up for six and a half to seven hours. Towards the end, he said, what do you mean you didn't do it? You just told me through the test that you did. We just want you to verbally confirm it. And at that point, the officer who had been pretending to be my friend, he came in the room and told me that the other officers were going to harm me. He had been holding them off, but he couldn't do so any longer, that I had to help myself. Then he said, just tell, you know, just tell them what they want to hear. You can go home afterwards. You're not going to be arrested. Being young, naive, frightened, 16 years old, not thinking about the long term. I was just concerned with my safety in the moment. I was overwhelmed emotionally and psychologically. I was, I was in fear of my life. The fact that I didn't know where I was and that nobody else knew where I was either, that loomed large in my mind. There was this possibility of harm he threw in the air. There was this false life preserver that he, he threw me. So I made up a story, I took the out which he uh, gave me and I made up a story based on the information he had given me that day and, his six, and, and that I had received and then the six weeks run up to things. And by the time it was all said and done, I had collapsed on the floor in a fetal position, crying uncontrollably. You know, obviously I was arrested. Uh, I was charged with a murder and rape. I want to add that the interrogation was not videotaped. It was not audio taped. There's no signed confession. It's just the cop's word for it. And as we'll see as we continue to unfold the story, that allowed them when they came into the court to leave the threat and false promise out of their story. So before before I went to trial, the results of a DNA test came in from the FBI lab, which showed a seminal fluid found in the victim didn't match me. But rather than acknowledge they made a mistake, they continued to prosecute full speed ahead. In order to explain away the DNA test result, the prosecutor got the medical examiner to commit fraud to commit perjury. When there's an autopsy done, there's written in audio notes which are taken as the findings are made. 
So it was only six months after doing the autopsy and only after the DNA didn't match me that this medical examiner said that he remembered that he forgot to document medical findings, which he claimed uh, showed that uh, Angela had been promiscuous, which was which is what opened the door for the prosecutor to argue, well, aha, that is how the DNA doesn't match Deskovic, and yet he's still guilty. She was promiscuous, she was sleeping around. She must have slept around prior, just prior to Deskovic murdering and raping her. Taking it a step further, he named another youth by name that he claimed had slept with the victim, but he never set the proper evidentiary foundation for that. So he never got a DNA sample from this other youth and had the test performed. Uh, he never even called him as a witness. He simply made the unsupported argument to the jury. And he got away with that because of two reasons. I mean, firstly, the victim's family was not coming to court. So they had no idea of what was being said about her in the courtroom, that her, they were lying and trashing her reputation in the furtherance of trying to convict me. And secondly, uh, more importantly, the public defender I had from Legal Aid Society of Westchester, he allowed him to get away with it. And this attorney uh, essentially uh, didn't defend me. He never, for example, interviewed or called us a witness my alibi. I was actually playing wiffle ball when the crime happened. Uh, he rarely met with me when he did meet with me and I tried to explain to him that I was innocent and what happened in the interrogation room. He was always shutting me up. One time he told me he didn't care if I was guilty or innocent. He never explained to the jury the significance of the DNA not matching me. You know, I didn't explain that to the jury. But then also, uh, also, he never cross-examined this medical examiner. He literally never asked him a single uh, a, a single question. He should have never represented me because of a conflict of interest, which was that the attorney for the other youth that the prosecutor was falsely saying had slept with the victim was another lawyer at Legal Aid Society of Westchester. And specifically, that lawyer was supposed to be supervising him on my case. So that conflict prevented the defense from asking him to give a sample that prevented the defense from calling him as a witness to explode the whole consensual sex theory. There were a couple of irregularities in, in, in my trial. The first is that polygraph test results are not admissible because it's not a scientific machine. I mean, people that are frightened often fail them. I mean, intelligence officers are even trained on how to beat the polygraph. Uh, and, you know, and the results, you know, of, of, of somebody, if a polygraphist is allowed to tell the jury that someone failed, then regardless of it not being scientific, that that that's very prejudicial. That's very, that would be very hard to overcome. So despite that being the general rule, the judge created a backdoor rule where he, where he reasoned that since the confession happened while I was hooked up to the polygraph, he, he allowed the polygraphist to testify about the polygraph. And he repeatedly told the jury that I failed the polygraph. Then the victim's clothes, including her bra, had been entered into evidence by the prosecution. The jury asked to see the bra, which was important because that intersected with one of the statements that had been coerced out of me, in which I said that I ripped her bra off. Well, there's some bras you can't rip off the body. That's not the way that they're made. So when the jury asked to see that, that's when the judge announced that the bra, along with the other clothes, had been left in the courtroom over the weekend that the janitors apparently thought it was garbage and therefore had been thrown out and was not available. So he refused, he refused to grant the mistrial. He refused to strike testimony about the bra. He substituted uh, for the bra a photo in which he said, quote unquote, you can almost see the bra in this photo. Now, a uh, last irregularity was the jury sent out a note on its third day of deliberation 
asking the judge, well, if we don't come up with a verdict, we'll be kept sequestered over the Christmas holiday. And uh, I learned many years later that at that point, the vote was 11 to 1 for a conviction, but there was a holdout juror that thought I was innocent. But they were pressuring him. And then when the answer to that question came back, that ratcheted the pressure up and, and nobody wanted to be there over the Christmas holiday, not even that juror. So he switched his vote and they found me guilty of a murder and rape, which I did not commit. And by this point, I was um, 17 years old. How was all of this allowed to happen? There's so many things wrong with the police interrogation, with the trial. Like, shouldn't these things be illegal? None of these things should have happened. I mean, yeah. none of, I mean, the, the interrogation not being recorded, I mean, there's still, I mean, in New York, there's a law that mandates now, mandates that custodial interrogations be videotaped but unfortunately there there were carve outs made in that so that doesn't apply to homicide sex offenses and drug cases wow. so working on myself and other advocates will get into that after but we're working on passing that bill now to to close that out um but certainly the threat and false promise that the police engaged in were illegal and that was the whole reason why they lied about it that was the main reason why they lied about it by just lying by omission um certainly the Poly, uh, the prosecutor engaged in misconduct. You know, you have to put some evidence in to then make an argument based on it. And so that was misconduct. Certainly with my trial uh, attorney, my defense lawyer did, you know, that was incompetent representation. The judge ignored the law and all these different rulings. You know, it's not proper jury deliberation to pressure someone. You can keep discussing. You can keep asking, well, why do you think that? Let's get into that. Here's what I think. Here's why I think. It's a discussion. It's a deliberation. It's not supposed to be pressure. And it's certainly not supposed to be because you all want to get out of there. Then you try to shut the person down who who's in a minority viewpoint. So you're right. All those things were, those things were all Ill illegal. And they're pretty much leading the jury at that point, even when yeah. it comes to evidence and yeah, and and the interrogation. Yeah, abs absolutely. Uh, so on the day of the sentencing, I begged the judge to overturn the verdict, and you know, I referenced the DNA to support my contention. He he actually told me on the record. He said, you know, maybe you are innocent. Now, what would you think if a judge thinks that a defendant might be innocent? Don't you think that they're gonna? find a way to overturn the conviction or prevent an injustice from going any further. Of course, you know, you don't have to be lawyers for that. But nonetheless, rather than doing that, he took the easy way out. I mean, he could have overturned my conviction by reversing any number of rulings he made against me in the course of the trial, including the bra being thrown out, which we were into a few minutes ago. But instead, he took the easy way out, which was to give me a sentence of 15 to life. I had been charged as an adult, tried as an adult, and I was therefore sentenced, I was given an adult sentence, and I was sent to a men's maximum security prison, uh, Elmira. When the police first came to talk to you about what mm -hmm. happened to Angela Correa, what was your reaction? I was very surprised. I didn't understand why they were talking to me. You know, I mean, I said to them, I don't, you know, they were saying they wanted to talk to me. They was, you know, and I said, well, I don't know anything about this. And then they said, well, we want you to be helpful to us. And I'm like, well, I would like to, but I don't see how I can be helpful. I don't know anything about this. I'll come down to the police station anyway. Well, I can't be helpful, uh, you know, come down anyway. And eventually I relented. I mean, my, you know, I had been 
raised the police are our friends they're there to protect us i mean certainly the police as bad guys as liars as somebody that would do something to harm you i mean that 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 wasn't even a thought in my in my head not not even an inkling of that which is why i went along with going to the police station you know my rights were read to me that day and in many many times in the course of that six weeks and even the day of the coerced false confession but that was kind of offset by a number of things. I mean, firstly, that general belief that I had about the police that I just sh shared with you. Uh, I was 16, so my age, I didn't understand, especially when it came to that portion of the Miranda warnings where it said anything you would you say can and will be used against you in a court of law. I, I never, my, I didn't understand that. My mind went to what I saw on television and that would pertain to civil court contexts. And I would think to myself, court, you know, what are you, what are you talking about? We're not, we're not going to court. And I think the whole good cop, bad cop thing added further mystery to not understanding them. It put my try, my understanding of the Miranda warnings even further away from me than, than, than that. I think a lot of people have a misunderstanding of Miranda warnings. Um, could you explain those so that it's more clear? First of all, if they're reading you the Miranda warnings, then you should consider yourself that you're in custody, that you're not free to go, and that the police suspect you of a crime. That's the most important thing. And closely related, or even right up there with that, is your next move is supposed to be to ask for a lawyer and don't say anything other than that. You know, you could give your name and where you live, but then after that, you ask for a lawyer and don't say anything. But many people believe that, you know, if you're innocent or you didn't have anything to do with the crime or don't know anything, then of course it's safe to talk to the police. What could happen? But actually, quite a bit could happen. I mean, coerced false confessions have caused wrongful convictions in 29% of the DNA proven wrongful convictions. And so, you know, if there is a possible way to use anything you say against you, they will do it. Even if it, even if it's an innocuous answer to, to a question in the moment, they're going to use that to later argue that you understood and you waived your Miranda warning. So if there's something else later on in the dialogue, you know, that's ambiguous that they could try to twist in a way to try to make it look like it's somehow you're incriminating yourself. Um, they're going to use your answer to a prior innocuous question to argue that you waived your rights, that you understood and you waived them. And look, it was totally voluntary. And I think that a lot of, you know, sometimes also uh, another thing to know with connected to that is that often the police turn parents into their agents of coercion. I mean, many parents don't understand what the warnings mean. And, you know, the cops get the parents to turn against the kid. Well, well, come on, Jimmy. They know you did it. Let's just just tell them what happened. They'll understand. And then we, we, we'll go home. And, you know, that's egged on by, you know, the, the verbiage the police use when they when they talk to parents and, you know, they and into suspects, they, they make it sound like it's understandable and they give out different scenarios which would make it less seriousness or they might talk about uh what they would have done or might have done in that scenario which again makes it sound understandable right and and who gets punished for something that's understandable so it kind of implies that and so that's another important uh thing to know so if you're listening and you're out there and and you know you're, you're ever called into that situation you know you don't don't encourage your kid to talk you ask for the ask for the lawyer and let them the lawyer arrived any discussion that needs to take place could happen then at that point and the lawyer would would make sure you understood your rights and would make sure that they don't uh coerce you and that any you know answers that are given you know are, are really voluntary that's super important but most people don't understand 
And you mentioned earlier about, you know, you were one kind of kid when you were in school and then obviously outside of school, you were somebody else and you didn't even realize it at the time. And then the NYPD also had a, a particular profile that you seemed to fit. Can you talk about who you were in school to, you know, the kids that you actually went to school sure. with and I, how yeah. you fit the profile? Yeah, I was in school. I was quiet and to myself and, you know, um, I, I went to school and I really didn't say much of anything and I didn't quite fit in and I knew that I didn't fit in and they all knew I didn't fit in and you know so I was mostly ignored other than being the butt of the occasional joke right so that was my life you know um, in school well, and in terms of how I fit the profile well they said it was someone that was that was um, kind of a loner well certainly not me after school but then again they're not looking at that they're just looking at my who I was in school and yeah I was to myself the people I socialized with in in, in the school were, were, were very few you know and I, that really even wasn't that even wasn't like a camaraderie or a friendship or socializing that happened even within the four walls of the school that that would have you know that would have been outside of school grounds not like in the classroom so I fit that and then they said well somebody that knew the victim well I mean I guess using an extremely loose definition of the word new I guess I could, you could say I fit that. I mean, she was in my two of my classes as a freshman, one as a sophomore. You know, I, I spoke to her twice in two years, maybe like two or three minutes each time. So I really didn't know her, but if you want to apply that loose definition, then yeah. And then I said, probably somebody in the high school. Well, I was in the high school. The, you know, the dark humor of it is that that narrowed it down to almost nobody in the high school using that profile as your guide. I mean, I guess you could say the entire Peekskill uh, High School, right? That had even this up passing word or just sit in the same room as Angela could have fit that definition if that's the way we're gonna go by it. What kind of support did you have? You know, you were just talking about families before, like the families should ask for a lawyer for their kid. So just tell us who supported you from when you were questioned throughout the time you were in prison and up until you got out and still now. Right. Well, while I was being questioned, I mean, I guess the I, mean, I guess the short answer would be nobody. There was one of my one of my best friends that that knew I was interacting with the police, but I don't think that they understood what the police were up to or perceived that I was, you know, what the risks were, the danger I was in. At one point when I, early on in the process, when I stopped communicating with the police, the police reached out to that friend and had him call me and let me know that they wanted to talk to him. And so if anything, they kind of co-opted him in a, in a, in a, in a way, in a low level way. In terms of while I was in prison, I mean, my mother used to come see me. Uh, I mean, she would make the trip once or twice a month, but in the last five or six years, you know, I was lucky if I saw her once every six months. I mean, it was a four or four and a half hour trip from Peekskill to Elmira Correctional Facility. And at one point things did tighten up financially and she had some problems with her feet and her back. Uh, my grandmother used to come with her to see her, but uh, to, with my mother to see me, but then she passed away while I was wrongfully imprisoned. That would have been 1996. So that would have been five to six years into the process. Uh, I had a set of, a couple of sets of aunts and uncles, but they would visit, disappear for three years, visit, disappear for three years and just continue that way. So in a lot of important ways, though not literal, I mean, I was essentially by myself for, for most of this process. Uh, there was another wrongfully convicted prisoner there named Frank Sterling. And 
Frank and I kept each other going for 13 and a half years. Um, once every six weeks, we would get together in the yard and half the conversation would be trying to keep each other going morale-wise. And the other half would be like a brainstormer about what the next move was. I mean, Frank, Frank, Frank was eventually, uh, exon- he was eventually exonerated through DNA testing a couple of years after I was. So just to make it clear that, you know, I wasn't like naively believing that somebody else was innocent just because I happened to be. Then in my last year in prison, and really prison was terrible. I mean, there was, you know, violence. There were stabbings or cuttings every day. There was violence that didn't involve weapons. There was the gangs, you know, so you always had to be alert. So there was a constant atmosphere of violence and adrenaline. Uh, The guards would bring their difficulties from their personal life onto the, in the prison and displacing it. You know, uh, some of them were, were dangerous. Food was terrible. Sometimes it was, it was burned. Other times it wasn't, it wasn't fully, uh, it wasn't, it wasn't fully cooked. There was a percentage of the population that had like visible mental health problems who would be talking to themselves and otherwise exhibiting other symptoms that were clearly symptoms of mental, of mental illness. Got the GED while I was in prison, got, went to college, got the associates, completed a year of schooling, was the bachelor's. But then even that silver lining was taken because they, 1995, the funding for financial aid, Pell and Tap was, was, was cut. So that was taken. I, I completed many programs in the vocational trades, but the curriculum there was, uh, was obsolete. Uh, the prison authorities, they tried to force me to take the sex offender training program. The problem with that was there was a guilt admission requirement tied to it, kind of similar to an AA, where you have to admit you have a problem in order for any kind of healing to take place. They wanted everybody would everybody would be required to admit guilt to themselves, to the to the instructor, to the other prisoners. They 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 didn't want you to just say you were guilty. They wanted uh, they wanted you to uh, uh, give a complete blow by blow account. You know, and to do that in writing and you know, fail to do any part of that, then that would result in an, you know, automatic removal from the program and it being deemed to have refused to complete it. So they tried to force me to take that. I mean, they refused to transfer me closer to home because of that. I was really supposed to have my security level drop to go from a max to a medium where there's a few more freedoms involved. And in the max, they refused to do that. They had an honor block program where, you know, they had certain minor privileges, like you could go to recreation every night, you could buy stuff at the commissary once a week rather than every two. They had movie night, they had a like a refrigerator and a stove that was shared by the people that were living there. And you could, uh, you know, shower on the gallery rather than have to go out to recreation with the rest of the population. So it was a few minor creature comforts, but they removed me from the list until such time as I agreed to take and complete the program. And they had the family reunion program where there's trailers that are located on the prison grounds, which you could have a conjugal visit if you were married or if you were not married, like I was not, you could have a trailer visit with, uh, with your family. And you'd come up, they'd come up like on a Friday, leave on a Sunday morning. You know, you could cook food there and, you know, be live in the trailer rather than the cell. So a little bit of normalcy. But, you know, they made clear that they wanted me to take and complete the sex offender training program before I'd be eligible to part. So they did everything in their power, in other words. Okay. They, they, they did that for about a decade, trying to force me to take that program. Um, so all that, all that stuff was, um, all that stuff was difficult. It was difficult. And they, you know, the way that they maintain order in the prison, I mean, they have, they have what's called keep lock, which they would, if you were found guilty of breaking a prison rule, they would keep you in the cell 23 hours a day. They would send you less food. Sometimes the food would be three or four days old, could not purchase food or hygienic items while you were 
on that status. You know, they put you in a small cage area by yourself with maybe a pull-up bar in it. If you were lucky, that was recreation while you were on that status. And, you know, you couldn't use the phone while you're on that status. And, you know, it was very, I mentioned it was dangerous. And then I had this, besides the general dangerousness, I mean, I was in prison for a sex offense, which is a vigilante mentality was people were convicted of sex offenses. So in the course of my incarceration, there were times where I was beat up one time, I nearly lost my life. But beyond dealing with that physicality, I was subjected to those sanctions because if you were defending, you're trying to defend yourself, then obviously that means that you were fighting. So then there were several times in my mid-20s where I helped to defend people that were attacked in front of me, and then I was subjected to those sanctions also. So that happened to me a number, uh, a number, a number of times. Probably the lowest point there was I was in solitary confinement, the one and only time I, I went there. Uh, it was given like 28 days. And so while I was in solitary, which I was there for defending myself against, you know, people that were going to come and stab me because as far as they were concerned, I was a sex offender. And while I was there, I received the news uh, from the court. So, I mean, I, I lost three appeals already. Now I was in federal court and I got news from the court that because my lawyer filed the paperwork, you know, too late, which was, you know, four days too late. And the lawyer's answer was, well, this was based on the information that the court clerk gave. So that my, because my petition arrived four days late, I had lost in federal court because of that. And so that was like the lowest point. And you know, I really wasn't even supposed to be in solitary. I was supposed to be in the prison hospital for observation because I had been hit multiple times on the side of my head with a 10 pound weight plate. So amongst all of that, you know, and I ultimately lost seven appeals. I, I got turned down for parole, likely because, like in large part, because I maintained my innocence rather than expressing remorse and taking responsibility. I, I got a pen pal. I had placed the ad in a, in a paper and somebody wrote me in person. Um, he was my pen pal for like a year. And I was openly asking the stranger, you know, do you think, you know, do you think I should just give up? Should I just kill myself? I'm never going to get out of here. So, I mean, that's, that, that was really just to illustrate how, how low I had reached by that point. But I would, I, my point in mentioning that is I would definitely count him as part of my support in prison, but keeping in mind that that was only in year 15. He showed up in year 15, not, not, not the, the whole way. Are you still in contact with Frank and the pen pal? Yeah, so the pen pal, uh, so um, I was in contact with Frank. I, I went home before he did. And so we stayed in touch. He used to call. We used to be, we were in touch that way. And I actually drove up to the court. I narrowly missed the metro, the Amtrak train. And so I drove five hours to, I wasn't going to miss his uh, court appearance. So I drove five hours up. Um, so I was, I spent the first four days of freedom with him and we were in touch. You know, Frank ultimately passed away after about nine years. In fact, I saw him a couple of months before he, he did. He, um, but I'm glad that 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 we did because that was the last time I, I saw him. But I was I was in touch with him on the outside. And again, I don't need to make more of it than what it was. I mean, we used to see each other once every six weeks. Um, so the pen pal's name Scott Kylie, and you know Scott lived uh, near uh, in Sacramento in California, um, which is three thousand miles away. But whenever I go to California, uh, I let Scott know that I'm coming to town. But yes, I am still I am still in touch with Scott. That's great. I have a question, just kind of going back a bit. You mentioned that, you know, when you were being interrogated and you had to go down on the station to talk to the police, that your family didn't know. Right. So you, did, you didn't tell them what was happening. No, I didn't tell them what was happening. No, 
No, I told my mother once for the first time, and you know, she made it clear she didn't want me to talk to the police, but I didn't quite understand why. Right. You know, and you know, and I was 16 years old, and that's you know the kind of age where kids are starting to try to assert their own independence, and you know, we all know better than our parents do. You know, so that that certainly wasn't was an impact on that. I do want to share how it was that I was exonerated. You know, so I mentioned I'd lost seven appeals. I got turned out for the parole. That was 11 years in. So then um, the only way back in the court when your appeals are over is if you can find some new evidence or if there's a new retroactive change in the law. So I didn't have money to hire an investigator or an attorney, neither did my family. So I started a letter writing campaign. So for four years, I wrote letters to um, nonprofit organizations, religious-based organizations, um, law firms, and Pretty much anyone I could think of, if I thought of something that they could do, which could set in motion a chain of events that ultimately culminated into my getting representation, then I wrote the letter. I did that for four years, you know, largely without getting any responses. But eventually one of my letters ended up, which I wrote in care of a publishing company and someone at the publishing company sent it to an investigator, Claudia Whitman. So she wrote me back and she... um, Try to get people to take my case. Uh, she gave me the idea of writing the Innocence Project, and she um, lobbied them. You got other people to lobby them for me, and then one of the intake workers, uh, Maggie Taylor, um, represented my case to the to the Innocence Project several times after getting the initial no. Um, so that was how I got their representation, and that was the first key. Second key was the district attorney who blocked me from getting DNA testing and fought all the appeals. Janine Pirro, she she left office. Her predecessor allowed me, I mean, her successor rather allowed me to get the testing. And the third thing was we took the, I got, I got lucky that, and that the, the DNA, they took the DNA that didn't match me. They put it in the data bank and it matched the actual perpetrator whose DNA was only there because left free while I was doing time for his crime. He killed a second, uh, he killed a second victim who was a school teacher and had two children, um, just, uh, three and a half years later after killing Angela. So when I matched him, the authorities confronted him with the evidence, and uh, he admitted he was the person who did the crime. So on September 20th, 2006, the conviction was overturned, and I was released, brought back to court November 2nd, at which point all the charges were dismissed against me on actual innocence charges, and he was subsequently arrested and convicted. So, you know, in terms of the support that you got from family visiting you and your pen pal and Frank, but in terms of your exoneration, who do you really thank or owe that to? Besides yourself, because you did a lot. I mean, obviously yourself, you're the most important advocate for yourself. Yeah, I would say it's a combination of people. I would say it's people, you know, that all played a role. I mean, it's hard to say who was more important than, than another. I mean, is it the investigator who came up with the idea of my writing the Innocence Project again? Or, you know, was it the intake worker that when the attorneys and people that make the decision at the Innocence Project said no, that represented the case several times? You know, is it the lawyer that actually did the legal work? You know, is is, is it the intern that worked with the lawyer? Is it Barry Sheck who did a minimal, if any, part work on the case itself, but did set up the well-oiled and well-funded machine. I mean, it's, I, I say it's a, each one of them has a part in it. What happened after your exoneration? How do you, how did you get to where you are now? 
Sure. So the first five years were extremely difficult for me. Uh, like everyone, I was released without anything. And while New York State allows you to get compensation, you know, there's nothing in the interim to help you get between point A and point B. So I did have a lot of struggles. I mean, there was a psychological, I had PTSD and related symptoms. There was a stigmatic effect. You were in prison wrongfully, but yeah, you were there for 16 years. So how much of that rubbed off on you? Is it safe to be alone someplace? So definitely that was that made things difficult when it came to personal relationships. Uh, technology was different. Cell phones, GPS, internet didn't hadn't existed. Culture was different. Cities and towns looked different. So cumulatively, it felt like I was in a parallel world, a place that I didn't belong. It was awkward when I'd meet up with members of my extended family because they had either never come to see me or, or extremely sporadic. So I had memories of them from when I was young, but I was a different person now. And so were they. So it was hard. It was awkward. It was hard to communicate. In terms of mental health, I do want to share that I saw mental health professionals for, you know, four times a week, you know, for six years. I was always passed over for gainful employment. I mean, I did catch on as a weekly columnist, but they only wanted one article a week. I was making money doing speaking engagements, but that's not a consistent form of income. So it was hard to have money come in and uh, I lacked stability of housing. I bounced around from place to place until eventually, you know, I was a couple of weeks away from the homeless shelter. You know, I did get a scholarship from Mercy College to finish the bachelor's degree. I mean, it hit that, the, the fact that I was 30 credits short of a bachelor's made its way into one of the articles as a human interest item associated with my um, wrongful conviction and release. So Mercy College, you know, in um, Dobbsbury, New York, they gave me a scholarship to finish the bachelor's. And then they allowed me to live on campus after um, when I lost the temporary housing I had. Then from there, Human Development Services of Westchester, they, they rented an apartment for me. I fit their mental health criteria diagnosis. And that was how I had some stability of housing at that point. Um, so at the same time, I'm having all those, and it was very lonely also, by the way. Um, and it was particularly challenging because I had been in prison from ages 17 to 32. So I had never before, I never lived alone before, and I never went shopping. I hadn't had a driver's license. I had never wrote a check. I never had to balance a budget. So all those things, I think, made, made things particularly difficult for me. Um, but at the same time, you know, I was doing advocacy work. I was speaking, I was writing, I was meeting with, I was trading privacy for awareness. So, you know, I, I was doing, you know, television, radio, print media interviews, and, you know, later, later on, um, you know, new new media. And I was meeting with elected officials and, and New York senators and assembly people and urging them to pass measures aimed at preventing wrongful conviction. So I did that for five years. And um, I did I did uh, get I did get a master's degree. I thought the extra credential from the John Jay College of Criminal Justice would make me a more effective advocate. My thesis was written on wrongful conviction causes and reform, so I thought that would also be good. So this way, I talk about issues other than the ones that occurred in my in my case. After five years, I did I did get some financial compensation. I used some of the money to start the Jeffrey Deskovic Foundation for Justice, which you can see that's my part of my background. And our mission was to continue the advocacy work I did as an individual, but have the exonerative component to it, which I couldn't do on my on, on my own. So we opened our doors in 2011. And we're still open now, and you know, we so far we've um, been able to free 13 people, help pass three laws, and then another six as part of a guest key members of a coalition called "It Could Happen to You," which I'm an advisory board member of and the foundation's part of. And we had some success in New York. We helped pass discovery reform, you know, better exchange of information ahead of time, the oversight for prosecutors called the Commission on Prosecutor Conduct. And using our blueprint of building the statewide coalition and the tactics we engaged in the course of um, passing that bill, 
historic chapters in Pennsylvania and California as well. In terms of um doing now, we um, have five active cases and another 11 that are approved that are waiting, uh, working on a number of policy reforms in New York. So getting rid of those exceptions is one. Uh, the Youth Interrogation Act is another, which would give 16, 17 year olds and kids younger, they, they would have to speak to a lawyer to explain their rights before they could waive them. There's a police deception bill, which would ban police from lying to suspects in the course of, in course of uh, interrogation, recognizing that that is inherently coercive. Challenging Wrongful Convictions Act, which would provide attorneys for indigent defendants for post-conviction motions. So I wouldn't have needed to write letters for four years, for for example, you know, and it would allow people who've pled guilty who who then get good attorneys after that and they find evidence of innocence that that evidence could be considered because right right now it's not considered by uh, by courts. You would simply argue that the new evidence shows your lawyer did an inadequate investigation, not not that it shows you're innocent or that it's newly discovered evidence. So that bill would change that. In Pennsylvania, it's one of 12 states that does not have compensation. So we're working at, so if I had been exonerated in Pennsylvania, I wouldn't have been entitled to any, to any money from the state. So working with stakeholders there in that state and passing compensation and cautiously optimistic that after being at this for about this being our fifth year, that we're going to pass the bill this year. And in California, we're working on passing the Commission of Prosecutor Conduct, the same bill like in New York and California, so exporting it there to address their prosecutorial misconduct problem. So uh, I'm active in those three chapters. And and at some point, you know, I became not satisfied with sitting in the front row of the courtroom. I wanted to be able to sit at the defense table, represent some of the clients, make some of the arguments. Uh, so I went to law school and uh, I'm an attorney. I recently had my first success as an attorney. I'm working with lead attorney Oscar Michelin, who's an advisory board member of the foundation. Um, we helped overturn Andre Brown's wrongful conviction. Uh, and then we exonerated another person was uh, Andrew Krivak, who was acquitted in his uh, retrial. So the same polygraphist that did what he did to me, did it to Andy. He was acquitted not long ago to people that whose, you know, freedom has been obtained, you know, recently. And working on some cases now, some of the ones that predate my law license I've entered as co-counsel while others are, are new. I feel like I'm at a different place, you know, mentally and emotionally. You know, I think the therapy helped to some extent, certainly getting the master's degree and law degree um, helped a lot, not just credibility-wise externally, but e even as an internal as an internal factor, it certainly feels uh, empowering to do that. There's a documentary short out about me called um, Conviction, which is available on Amazon Prime. I do co-own a game called the Recharge Beyond the Bars Reentry Game, which facilitates all my incarcerated people with being, with reintegrating by just having icebreaker questions, you know, that facilitate dialogue. I mean, to encapsulate, you know, I remember my brother came to see me three times in 16 years, not not at all in the last decade. I remember when I when I came home and I remember one conversation yeah, where he said, you know, I don't I don't know what to say. I don't know what not to say. I don't know what to ask. I don't know what not to ask. So recharge steps in the middle and removes the awkwardness by these icebreaker type questions. So I'm happy to be involved. Um, you know, involved with that. I I'm in other coalitions, um, the Right to Remain Silent Coalition, which is a group that's pushing the youth interrogation bill, and then um, sitting on the Global Advisory Council for Restorative Justice uh, International, you know, recognizing that restorative justice applies to wrongful conviction in terms of trying to make, you know, looking at the exonerees as, um, you know, as victims, as survivors, you know, so it would apply in that, you know, in that way. And, you know, certainly an application to the crime victims themselves. and. 
you know, so it applies in a number of ways, but I, I advise them on wrongful conviction issues. And, you know, they, they're not a nonprofit, so they do, the organization itself can, can endorse, unlike what, you know, I, don't, I only endorse as an individual, not as a, not as a nonprofit. Congratulations on everything that you've accomplished and especially your, you know, your recent accomplishment with the Andre Brown case. Consider that I do this work. I, I mean, this is what I'm here in the world for. I kind of, so I kind of have my purpose. It's my silver lining and, um, you know, it, it's healing. It's, it's healing. It's cathartic. You know, it makes, it makes, it makes a difference and, you know, it allows me to make my suffering count for something. And, um, you know, I'm not an angry person. I want to enjoy my life as much as I can. And I can't do that if I'm angry or bitter. And uh, the vehicle that allows me to actualize that, I take the energy that I feel and I channel it into the advocacy work that I do. How do you feel about the victories? The road to passing legislation, the road to freeing people, whether that's exoneration or you know, if any of our clients come up for parole in the interim, once they're in approved case, you know, we do work to try to get them out on parole so they can be free. You know, the road to freeing people, either either route, particularly the exonerative route, all, all those roads are very, is very long and hard, and it can be lonely. You know, um, so you know, victories uh, are attainable, but they're hard. They're hard to come by, but it always. It always requires a superhuman amount of effort and then like a a break here or there along the way as well, often something unanticipated or someone un- unanticipated. Uh, but when they do happen, you know, it's it's a reminder of why we do the work that we do. It makes everything be be worth it. It's to me, it's the best feeling in the world, you know, to go to go from visiting somebody in prison or taking a collect call from them to visiting them and you know seeing them in the outside world or getting a regular call you know if i look down at my cell phone it's ringing oh it's it's andre brown well okay hey andre how you doing rather than it being a collect call at certain times and you know if you miss the call i can't take it and he's going to have to try again tonight or the next day you know or later on in the week whatever the case may be uh, that's really an exhilarating thing, and you know, really kind of no no words to to put into it. I mean, other than you know, it does it does feel humbling. You know, I try to never lose lose, lose track. You know that you know I'm I'm providing a service, and you know I'm helping people, and I'm a tool, I'm a vessel, and it's not really about me. So I think that keeping my head the right size and keeping my feet on the ground are super important to me that so that I don't lose my way, you know, along and, and working with people. Yeah, my my ultimate goal would be to, you know, one day have a chapter of the foundation in each state. And uh, ultimately, in each country, I really see wrongful conviction. It's not a not a New York problem. You know, it, it's 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 a not even a national problem, though it is, but it's much bigger than that. It, it, it's really a worldwide problem. And I believe that the countries where we don't hear about wrongful conviction, it's not that it's not taking place. It's that nobody's being exonerated or and or that nobody is working on the issues there. I think that's a, I think that it's they're all difficult jobs. And I think the world would kind of be scary without cops. I mean, I guess we would have a, a return to the wild, wild west if we got rid of them. So I personally think that's a bridge too far. I, I'm, I'm instead in favor of additional training and a uh, training and, and uh, you know, ac- accountability, you know, so that's kind of where I land. And, and, and I say that, and, and I say that, and, you know, and, um, you know, I, I reject the idea that it's just a few bad apples, 
you know, they always say that when there's police misconduct of one kind or another, it's always a few bad apples, right? But it's not because there wouldn't be more than 3,000 exonerations. We wouldn't see the brutality. We wouldn't see the unjustifiable deadly police force if it was just a few bad apples. So no, it's a lot more than that. And as long as you keep saying that it is, I think you continue, law enforcement continues to keep that barrier there between themselves and the citizenry. But at the same time, it also is not everybody either. So I mean, it's like any other profession. You don't magically become more ethical because you put on the uniform and you have the authority, the badge, and the gun. And so I think that by taking all these different positions and trying to be balanced and even killed, I think that I, you know, I try to pitch a wide tent and I try to have a message that people can come together and agree on and try to be that danger to change. And I was going to ask, is there any way if somebody is interested in helping out and donating? Yeah. So we have our website, www.deskovic.org. Nice and simple. There's a donate page. You can go through pay, uh, PayPal. Uh, we also have our Patreon page. So just type in on you know, Google search bar, P-A-T-R-E-O-N and Deskovic Foundation. We actually prefer if people donate to the Patreon page because it's something that's, that's visible. And the more people that agree to be recurring monthly donors, the more likely it is other people will want to pile on, whereas PayPal is more is more of a private thing. So people can certainly donate those ways um, if you are if you work at a corporation and they do corporate philanthropy. So you could, you know, put a bug in somebody's ear. I mean that would be another way. Or if there's if you work if you as a service or product that you have that could conceivably assist with what with what we're doing. We are a nonprofit organization. So it doesn't have to be, you know, limited for example, it's not to be limited to like being in the legal field. I mean, you know, we're trying to raise funds. So whether you have some talent in fundraising or you're a grant writer, or you could assist us on the public relational level or any other application, you know, whatever it is you're doing, I mean, people can certainly, you know, volunteer some of their services, you know, that way to help us grow and expand that, that certainly would be, would, 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 would be welcome. Those are also ways that, you know, people can, um, can assist. If you were standing next to 16-year-old Jeff, what would you tell him? Don't speak with the police without asking for a lawyer. A lot of people just don't understand. They, Like you said before, you know, they know what they've seen on TV, and that's always their point of reference. They don't understand that, yeah, there's Miranda rights, but the police can still talk to you before that. Right, in a non-custodial situation. Yeah, of course. And they think that they can, you know, like if, well, I'm innocent, so I'm just going to tell them that. And then maybe, you know, since they're asking for my help, I help them. But no, just just do nothing, say nothing, do only as much as you're required to do, get a lawyer. I would encourage people to think about careers in this. I mean, whether it's lawyer, investigator, paralegal, legislator, uh, elect, uh, staffer, you know, there's no one particular, you know, this cuts across uh, it cuts across social economic status. It cuts across religious lines. It certainly cuts across uh, color lines. Uh, though minorities, this happens much more frequently to minorities. I mean, nonetheless, plenty of whites that this happens to. I'm pretty much as white as you can get, you know. And it, and it did happen to me. So you know, it's not not necessarily. So other than that, it's not necessarily that you know you you put yourself in harm's way. I mean, yeah, that sometimes that is the case. The lifestyle that you're leading puts you on a police radar and thus makes you more vulnerable for this happening. But not always. I mean, I I, I was not involved in crime. I had no pre-existing record, and people I was with were not involved in crime. So not necessarily. I would say it could happen to you. 
this really could happen to anyone. You know, we've spoken to people from all walks of life and it's just not something they thought was going to happen. It's not how they thought their life would go, but they've made the most of it and they're doing what they can to prevent this from ha happening to other people and to help people who it already has happened to. Jeff, thank you so much for speaking with us about your story and all the work that you do. You know, you truly are making a difference in helping people. Thank you. Thanks for having me on and amplifying my voice through your platform. We'd like to thank Jeff for being on the show and for sharing his incredible story and the urgent need for criminal justice reform. His personal journey from his wrongful conviction to exoneration shows some of the many flaws within our criminal justice system. To continue to stay informed and engaged about wrongful convictions and Jeff's advocacy, we encourage you to check out the work being done by the Deskovic Foundation. We'll have a link to their website in the episode's show notes. Well, that's going to do it for this episode of Bound by the Cloak. Follow us on X, Instagram, and TikTok. Listen to us on Apple, Spotify, Good Pods, and any other podcast app you happen to use. We'll be back again in two weeks with a brand new episode. Thanks for listening. Until next time.